0: Welcome to Leading Simple with Rusty George. Our goal is to make following Jesus and leading others a bit more simple. Here's your host, Rusty George. Hey, welcome to a special edition of Leading Simple and one of the more complex things that we're dealing with right now in our culture is the the completion of the NCAA football season and the NFL football season. So I wanted to just talk football. We just crossed Thanksgiving. We're all thinking about football. We've seen a lot of it and we're about to get into bowl season and the playoffs and everything's getting very exciting. So I have my good friend Mark White back with me, uh, who's an avid sports follower. And we have been in awe of a particular blogger and uh, podcaster, author and now friend Brian Dodd uh, for years because of his collection of sports knowledge and his vast reading of sports books and so we wanted to bring Brian on the podcast again to ask him about all things football so Brian thank you for joining
1: us well I tell you what Rusty it is great to be back with you Mark nice to meet you and uh I, it's an honor that you know all three of us are involved in ministry, and I cannot wait to tackle the hard-hitting, life-changing subject of professional and college football, so can't <laughs> wait to get started. So, You
0: know, there's always a moment around this time that I, I start to get really sad because it's almost over. You know, it seems to go yeah. so quickly, especially college. You only play 12 games, so... Here we are, Brian. I want to just start with this. You read a lot of sports books about leaders. You know, there's a lot of books out there about team culture, about coaches, but who are the coaches that you have learned the most from, and what are some of the best things that these coaches do?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll pick uh, two that probably most people would relate to, and then I want to pick one that's kind of off the path a little bit. So, obviously, Nick Saban. And I want to be very specific about what I learned about Nick Saban. And I think if you're in leadership, whether you lead in a church or you lead in a business, uh, of course, if you lead an athletic organization, we're really seeing a unique leader right now in Coach Saban. And that's just not, not necessarily what I would call the outcomes, which is the seven national championships. But what I love most about coach Saban is his incredible adaptability and, and willingness to change and humility to change over and over and over again. And so obviously if you've watched Alabama for the last 15 years, you've seen him go from like 250 pound linebackers like Dante Hightower, you know, down to, you know, the faster linebackers like a Reuben Foster or now fast defensive ends like a Will Anderson. So you've seen him change completely there. You've seen him go to the spread offense. Um, And the thing, too, about Nick that's so great is he changes his staffs every year. I mean, think about that as you two as pastors, if you had a new executive pastor and worship leader every year, you know what that would be like. Well, he's changing staffs every year. His ability to change – and evolve over time, I think we're seeing something from a historical perspective we may never see again. Mm -hmm. And I try not to get too overwhelmed with all the wins, even though they are overwhelming, but his ability to change is just unbelievably uncommon. Mm -hmm. The second thing I love about him is what I've learned about him as it relates to news conferences. Mm -hmm. They are his news conferences. They are not the University of Alabama's news conference. It's not the media's news conference. That is Nick Saban's time to get the message out to his players, to the public, and to the administration about what he wants to say about the team's performance and create culture. Mm. And so as somebody that communicates for a living, not as much as you two, because you two do it, you know, a minimum of every seven days, How I communicate and in the environments I'm put in, uh, yes, I've learned from Coach Saban about how to utilize those forums as a way to get your messaging out. Second, Dabo Swinney, Clemson. Uh, Here's what I've learned from him, Uh, the importance of culture, and we'll probably talk about Clemson later on, Um, but he has established a culture there. You know, people say, can Dabo win in the pros? Well, you know, time may one day tell, but the one thing he does have going for him is he knows how to establish a culture. And I've studied culture pretty deep the last couple of years. And one of the things I've learned that's the hardest part about creating a culture is most leaders don't know who they are. You know, that's why if an idea comes in or they get pressured from certain people or things like that, they can get kind of wishy-washy on the mission and vision and the core values and things like that. Um, The important thing, Seth Godin has my favorite. There's a lot of definitions of culture. Seth Godin has, for me, the easiest one to understand. This is what we say and this is what we do. You know, and Dabo is very clear. This is what we say. This is what we do. This is how we treat each other. These are the kind of people we recruit. This is how we will prepare. This is how we deal with boosters. You know, all these things are going on in culture and society. It may impact them, but they're unfazed by it. And that's, a, that's the difference. You can be impact, but remain unfazed. We're very clear on who we are, and this is what we do. And now I'm going to give you one off the beaten path. Earlier this year, I did a deep dive into European soccer. I guess I had nothing else to do, but I did a deep dive into European soccer because, (laughs) you know, those guys are 11 11 or 12 Tom Brady's on the field at the same time. So the leadership intensiveness Mm. of European soccer is is extreme. Jurgen Klopp of Liverpool – i'm going to recommend a book believe us by melissa reddy it's one of the best books i've ever read on organizational leadership and developing a winning culture and i'm going to give you two things i learned from jurgen klopp number one how to deal with failure at the end of the day failure for the most part is not final Uh, there are some failures you can't overcome but for the most part failure is not final Failure is merely a data point. What did we learn from a particular piece of failure that we can now grow from and we can improve from and we can get better from? Let's don't overreact. Let's don't get overwhelmed. It's a data point, okay? The sun will rise tomorrow and let's figure out how to lever- leverage failure to improve our team and organization. The second thing is the the way he valued everybody within the Liverpool family. So he did something I thought was extraordinarily uh, uh, just incredible. Liverpool has over 200 employees, not counting the soccer players and the managers on the team. And so what he did, and once again, in Europe, these people are treated like gods. He sat the players in a room and he walked in all 200 employees Now, these are marketing people, ticket sales, custodial, you know, everybody that's employed by the team. And one by one, they introduced himself themselves and they said, here's what I do to make you a champion. Huh. And then what was great about that is so you've got somebody working in the dining room who now knows Virgil van Dyke you know, who's the best defensive player in soccer, you know, so you've got this kind of relationship. So when they have like Christmas parties and things like that, everybody's invited to the same party. Mm. And so you've got, I mean, if you think about that, so you've got a custodian or a ticket sales person, their spouse is coming to the Christmas party and gets to hang out with these soccer players. Mm-hmm. And I think that that culture of importance and that culture of value and mm-hmm. how everybody matters, and not only do we say it just as a, you know, hey, everybody matters. No, I'm going to walk in and I'm going to talk to you about how my particular responsibility within the organization makes you a champion. And I just think those are some significant things I've, I've learned from coaches in the last year.
0: It sounds a little bit like the uh, Christmas party on Ted Lasso, if you follow that, where they all get together and everybody's equal. That's, that's great. Okay, so I never thought we'd pub a soccer book on this podcast because I'm adamantly opposed to it. But anyway, that's okay. Well, here's
1: the thing, Rusty. I, I, li- I listen to your podcast. You have a very intelligent audience. <laughs> I can't come with just Dabo and Nick. I mean, everybody knows them. I've got to come with something else.
0: So. That's true. That's true. I'll, I'll give you that one. Okay. Great answer. Mark, you're up.
1: Yeah. Hey, Brian,
2: uh, before I before we move off that question, any, any thought to why, uh, just back to Nick Saban, why his assistants? I mean, I think Jimbo now is the first one to beat him. But it was like 23 or 24 in a row that he beat his former assistants. Any thought to what that is? Because there's some great assistants that became head coaches under him.
1: Yeah. Uh, You know, I I would also chalk this up to Bill Belichick and the success he's had against his assistants. I think when you hire somebody from a successful organization, what you're trying to do is replicate that organization where you're at. And I think a lot of times, I mean, like let's say you're – you know, one of Rusty George's teaching pastors. Okay, well, when you go to your next church, you're going to try to to preach like Rusty George. Well, that may or may not work based upon that context. And so I think if I'm just going to give kind of a blanket answer is so many of those people were so deeply entrenched in that particular culture, they're not their own person. They're a mini Bill Belichick or a mini Nick Saban. And, you you know, you got to be who God created you to be. And you Mm -hmm. can take the lessons learned, but then leverage them and and filter them into your unique giftedness and your uh, unique talents and abilities and become who God created you to be. And I think you'd probably be have much better success if you took that route. Mm -hmm.
2: That's really good. good. So let's talk a little bit about some of the the coaches in college, some of the top-notch coaches that have tried to make the jump to the pros, including Nick Saban, but Mm -hmm. weren't successful. And there was a, there was a a string of that that happened and then they weren't successful. And then that stopped. And now we're starting to see a little bit of that again with urban Meyer and I think Matt rule and all that stuff. And I'm sure Lincoln Mm -hmm. Riley, will get some, will will get some sniffs in the pros as well. But why do you think successful college coaches like the Sabans and the chip, chip Kelly's in the world for the most part, aren't successful in the pros?
1: Well, I'm, I'm going to give you two secondary answers and then the big one. Number one, uh, it's a different game. The pro game is a different game than the college game. Uh, it, you know, Chip Kelly, for instance, you got to play complementary football in the pros. You can't score every two minutes. You're, you'll wear your defense out. So it's a different game, number one, different hash marks, you know, different substitution patterns. It's a different game. So that's number one. I think two, there's a different pressure dealing with boosters and alumni is different than dealing with billionaires and billionaires. Jurgen Klopp may know how to effectively handle failure. Most billionaires don't appear that they deal with that very well. So I think, how you deal with the people you report to is completely different. But here's the big reason, in my opinion, the pro game is all about the quarterback. Hmm. If you don't have a good quarterback, you do not. I don't want to say you don't stand a chance. That might be too hyperbolic. Uh, You're behind the eight ball and it's an uphill battle and it's an uphill climb. And the rules are geared towards the success of the quarterback uh, you've got to have a good quarterback. Nick Saban is the most famous example. If he would have been allowed to, you know, if, if that person, the team doctor would have approved the signing of Drew Brees, football history would be completely different. Huh. And, you know, so Nick says, I can go out and get my own quarterback every year. You know, I can, I can pick my quarterback. I don't have to have it approved or what's left over in the draft. So I think uh, it's a different game. There's different pressure, and it's a quarterback-driven league. And I'm sure there's some things in there, too, about dealing with grown men is different than dealing with teenagers in early 20s. I'm sure there's a lot of that in there, too. But if I had to nail it down to one thing, it's got to be the quarterback.
2: So, so, Brian, would you say that if you reverse that, and um and I know recruiting is a part of this, but let's say you took the Belichicks there was talk of Tomlin and the USC rumor that was around and all that. Mm-hmm. how do you see those transitions going because we don't see that.
1: You know it's funny I would be a big proponent of pro coaches going to college uh, because number one they know how they know how to deal with pressure they know and number one you're only going to bring successful coaches in. So they know how to win. They know how to establish culture. They know how to establish an organization. They know how to lead assistants. They know how to, you know, the hardest people to coach are the assistant coaches. They know how to do that. Plus they bring the cachet of being a professional coach. I can get you ready to go to the NFL, which is the number one thing recruits are looking for. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, you know, but Tomlin's answer was so refreshing and unique. And how he was almost insulted that you would consider him for a college job. How dare you? You know, and uh, Brian, but yes. I
2: was I was insulted. I'm a Steeler fan. I was insulted. I was <laughs> for the
1: but obviously, here's the thing about it. Obviously, any major college would want Mike Tomlin as their coach. Mm -hmm. You know, I, you know, we can all take a guess, but there's going to be eight to 10 pro jobs available at the end of the year. Obviously, every one of them would want Mike Tomlin to be their coach. Mm -hmm. If you're USC, of course you give it a shot, Mm -hmm. you know, so I can't blame USC at all. And also USC probably, well, Alabama would be number one, but USC is number two in the success of a pro coach coming to college.
0: Mm hmm. Yeah, definitely. Uh, just on a side note, uh, who would you assume to be the next head coach at USC? That's that's big out where I am.
1: That is, That is a great question. Um, this sounds terrible. After y'all went through the initial, you know, going out there and looking for people, Y'all kind of from a national conversation, it's kind of fallen off the radar. Who are who are y'all looking at?
0: Well, I'm not gonna lump myself into that because I've come out on the record and say I'm not a Trojan fan. So I okay. think they're looking I think they're still looking at James Franklin from from Penn State. Oh, that's that right. seems to be okay. the and and his response to uh, the question about that was far different than Tomlin's response, yeah. which you wrote yeah. about in the blog.
1: Yeah, you're right, James Franklin. Well, of course, I live in the South, and he did a phenomenal job at Vanderbilt, mm-hmm. and you know he's done a good job at Penn State. He'd do a great job. Uh, so yeah, if you get James Franklin, you'll you you'll be you'll you'll do really really well. So okay, Here's so the thing about USC, if you can just lock down Los Angeles. Yeah, just lock down Los Angeles. If you can do that, USC will return back to national prominence.
0: Well, I mean the you know Bryce Young at Alabama. I mean he's the LA kid. If he'd stayed here, that would have changed everything. Yeah. So. Well, okay. Well, I'm glad he didn't because I'm a I'm, I lean towards the uh, the powder blue, the UCLA. So <laughs> anyway, uh, with all the coaches uh, that you've read or interacted with. Besides some of these ones that you've just mentioned, are there some common leadership themes you just see across the board? Uh, it's like almost every one of these coaches has a f- just a couple of these qualities.
1: Yeah, number one, they're great culture builders. You know, you've got you, to build a great culture. Uh, culture does each strategy for breakfast. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you, can, if you can build a, this is who we are and this is what we do, and you create that alignment with everybody on the team, Uh, That's important. Number two, they're continual learners. One thing about pro sport, you know, football comes across to the average viewer as the Roman gladiators. It is an incredible cerebral sport Mm. in terms of strategy and discipline and execution and things of that nature. They are continual learners. And I'm always amazed about how coaches learn from other cultures. Uh, coaches, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. They're very adaptable. And here's the thing, they build great staffs. If you can be a leader of leaders, that is also along with culture building, in my opinion, um, you know, those are probably the top two keys in developing a winning program.
0: You know, I'm glad to hear you say that because I have always been amazed that a guy like Mm -hmm. Belichick and even Saban, for how smart they are and how successful they are, yet they still learn from other coaches. Like that book you told us about, Gridiron Genius, Belichick sat down with Chip Kelly and said, explain this spread offense to me. I mean, that was right. fascinating for a guy of his accomplishments to go to somebody without the accomplishments and say, teach me.
1: Well, you, you know, think about it. The 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 bad leadership model or the unsuccessful leadership model is this. Uh, by that time, he'd probably won four or five Super Bowls. I've won four Super Bowls. You need to be coming to me. Right. But he saw this coach doing something that was completely unique. And look, you see these college coaches learning from high school coaches. Mm-hmm. You know, the innovation in football is happening on Friday night and filtering through Saturday into Sunday. <laughs> it is not happening on, on Sunday and filtering back to Friday night. Uh, so, mm. yes, uh, these great coaches are incredible learners and incredibly humble. See, that's the thing you don't think about. Uh, it's funny, Rusty, and, and you would fall in this bucket. I have the privilege of working with pastors And I have the privilege of working with some of America's greatest pastors, large congregations, significant impact. And I'll always ask them this question. I'll say, look, give or take whatever statistic you read, 85, 90 percent of churches plateaued or declining. Okay, you're one of the you're one of the 15 percent that's growing. Obviously, it's the goodness of God. Tell me how you're doing it. Hmm. You know, and here's the number one answer I get. They'll go, Brian, look, we're doing everything we know how to do. We try to do good services that are relevant and help people. And we try to have good systems. And then they'll say this, Brian, we were sitting around talking about in staff meeting. We don't know where these people are coming from. We don't know what's going on. We're just trying not to mess it up. Hmm. The greatest leaders are the most humble leaders. Mm-hmm. Because they know what's happening in their business, in their organization, in their church, in their family is beyond who they are. Mm-hmm. And there's a thing about Nick Saban that if you could really get Nick alone and he be honest with you, he's a guy that grew up in a coal mine in town whose first job was at a gas station. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow all of this has happened. And I think if you got him alone, you'd find out that Coach Saban would be extraordinarily humble, as are most pastors I've ever had the opportunity to deal with.
0: Yeah, mm. that's good.
2: Would you say the same thing, Brian, about Belichick? Because he he comes across – I mean, I understand. There's kind of the front – the, the out-front yeah. part of him, okay? Uh, but, how you know, in reading some of the stuff like with the book Dynasty and some of the other stuff, I mean, he he is – he's an intense guy, but yet players seem to love him. There's a high accountability, all that stuff. Would you say the same thing about him?
1: Yeah, there has to be something that makes these individuals attractive to other people. And I'm not talking about physically attractive. I mean, uh, you know, relationally attractive to other people. That there's a reason that they're willing to go through a wall for these people, Mm -hmm. okay? And so um, the thing that I always... We, we'll never get to that unless somebody just really reveals it. But um, there has to be something about Belichick that, from a relational standpoint, is elite, just as his mind is elite in terms of strategy.
2: Hmm. All right, let's shift gears and talk about recruiting a bit. I, I'm kind of a, I love following uh, high school recruiting and all that stuff. So I, I just love this. And I'm just kind of fascinated with the whole uh, psychology behind it, what great recruiters do and all that uh, when it comes to college football, college sports. What do you think we can learn from great recruiters uh, that we can take into just our churches, our organizations, that we can draw great talent and keep great talent
1: in our churches and organizations? Yeah. Great question, Mark. Two things. Number one, have a template. This goes back to culture, really, if you take it all the way back, have a template of what you were looking for. A lot of times when we see a talented person, we try to take that talent and overlay it onto our culture and our and our template for what we're looking for in an employee or a team member and somehow figure out how to make it work because they're so talented. It's actually the reverse. This is who we are as an organization. This is what type of person is successful in our organization. And we overlay that on, t- on top of the recruit to see if they fit that profile. Uh, so, you know, regardless of what industry you're in, you can be so blinded by talent They may not be a culture fit. They may not fit with your team. They may not have the character you're looking for, but they're just so talented that if we get them on our team, we'll find a seat for them on the bus. And the great recruiters don't do that. They know who they are and what they're looking for, and they have a template for that. Number two, and this is very important, because I know the two of you hire people a lot. Um, Every person you bring into your organization there has to be a personal development plan specifically for that individual. So let's say you're hiring a communications pastor. Okay. When they step foot on our campus, we need to have a developmental plan so they can be successful in their job on our church staffs. Hmm. And if I'm in the NFL and I'm drafting a player, so let's say I'm drafting you know, when the Minnesota Vikings drafted Anthony Barr, the linebacker from UCLA, uh, what happened at that point, Anthony Barr needed to come to the team with a plan for Anthony Barr to be successful. That's a psychological plan, a physical plan, a scheme plan, a learn plan, a nutritional plan, a recovery plan. We need to have a plan for this individual to be successful. If you know who you're looking for and have a plan for them to be successful once once uh, they join your team, then you're going to be a very good recruiter. And then also that will get out and other players, players talk to players and they'll know that that is happening and you'll you'll just create this good cycle of recruiting that'll just continue to happen over and over again.
2: You know, it's interesting that you say that because in, in college football and pro, but in college football, they talk a lot about recruiting classes, top recruiting classes, but then they just talk about the idea of player development. And uh, just hearing you talk about that, just thinking about the whole idea of, well, man, how do we, I mean, they have to have a specific plan there. Do we have a specific plan in our, our churches and organizations? And um, I'm just kind of thinking back to some of the the people we brought on our staff that didn't work out. I wonder if it was more of a development issue on our hmm. end than on their end.
1: Well, you know, the funny thing about it, uh, so Bobby Bowden at the end of his career, you know, he was getting all those top recruits, recruiting classes. Mark Rick at the end of his career was getting all those top recruits. And, you know, it re- you know, I appreciate we came in number two, number three, number four in the recruiting classes every year. The thing that's so great about Ohio State, about, about Nick Saban, now about kirby smart at georgia is is they're they're maximizing the talent that they that they bring in Mm -hmm. and so if you're going to have all these great recruiting classes yes you you need to you need to know what to do with them as well
0: hey let me interrupt this podcast to tell you to go right now to compassion.com slash rusty and sponsor a child through compassion it will change their life it will change your life do this as a family do this individually whatever it takes sponsor a child today compassion.com slash rusty okay back to our show okay brian uh i want to ask you about a uh, transition because many of us in ministry have had to follow somebody else mark didn't because he went and planted a church um and did his own thing. But most of us have walked into a situation where we follow somebody who's either gracefully left and is beloved, and now we have to be in their shadow, or there was some kind of controversy and they were removed, and now we have to clean it up. All coaches walk into this. All coaches have to follow somebody else and expectations that are there. So what are the the priorities that the good ones have because there's so many things that you can think of, boy, I need to fix this, 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 and this cast this vision, do this, create this culture. What seems to be the checklist for the good ones?
1: Yeah. I think whenever you're taking over a program, a couple of things, number one, discipline yourself to never talk bad about the previous staff. Hmm. You know, Babe Ruth said it famously yesterday's home run doesn't win today's game. Um, yesterday's, uh, poor decisions by other people do not win today's games either. So there is no upside at all about running down the previous staff. Yeah. It's, it's wasted energy. It's sideways energy. And candidly, it just makes you look weak. Mm. Okay. It's, it's an excuse. So number one, there's that number two, you can't say you have to discipline yourself to not say, Uh, Wait till I get my players in here or wait till I build my team or Mm -hmm. wait till I get, you know, you you know, you get you get the drift on that. They didn't choose you, but you chose them. You're my team. And you're my guys and you're my ladies. And you know what? We're going to build a winning culture here. This is what it takes for us to win. This is what we do. This is what we say. This is how we train. This is how we handle defeat. This is how we handle success. This is how we recruit. This is how, you know, this is this is what we expect as terms of citizenship, be it in college, going to class and how you deal with with other people. And in the pros, you know, what kind of citizen are you? This is who we are and this is what we will do. And this is how we will win and you start building that culture immediately. The other thing I would advise people to do uh, is spend some time figuring out why the previous person lost their job. Hmm. Because they've already stepped on landmines you don't have to step on. And they've already made mistakes you don't have to make. So if you can spend a little time, for lack of a better phrase, not thinking you're the savior coming in to save the day, but, but hey, no situation's perfect, no environment's perfect, no culture is perfect. If you come in and just say, okay, what's some things that's happened in the past that I can learn from, that I'm not mm. going to use as an excuse, I'm going to learn from it, but, but learn why the previous person is not there anymore so you don't make those same mistakes.
0: That's really good. That allows you to at least, you can even ask that in the interview, you yep. begin to figure out what they value because it's, It's not just the Great Commission in ministry. There's a, yeah, do that. But you also need to uh, visit those in the hospital every day, or you need to take care of my kids in youth ministry or whatever it is. So everybody's got a a secondary agenda.
1: Right, exactly. And and you're right. uh, Uncovering all that in the interview process is, is key. But when you take over the job and you become the leader, you are the leader. Hmm. And everything rises and falls on you right it doesn't matter what happened before you know it it you know those things don't matter. everything rises and falls on you so what type of culture are you going to build?
0: that's good hey Mark gonna... mark that stuff for a church planner because you can't blame anybody it's just it's just oh you, you
2: can you can it's just, <laughs> it just makes you look bad right it just makes you even look weaker. All little right, yeah. weaker. Hey, Brian, w- just a quick thing on on the transition thing. What is the time frame that when a leader steps into, uh, you know, following someone? What's what's kind of the time frame that they should be looking at uh, when they are able to see their culture firmly established? Any? Yeah, you know, it's fun. On-
1: Urban Urban Meyer, you know, who's having his challenges now, but Urban ruined that for everybody in college, you know. But ultimately, <laughs> ultimately, I would tell everybody five years. You know, even mm-hmm. in ministry, Barna says vision does not start kicking in until year five.
0: Wow.
1: Okay. And so, so here's the, here's the thing about it: if you're going into a difficult situation, the stories of you know Florida and Ohio State and those kind of things, the, those are those are outliers. And mm-hmm. don't confuse an outlier with a staple. You know, if you can start showing gradual improvement, and by five years be running a an, an elite program or proper expectations elite program for where you're at, that five years is pretty solid. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's funny. So I help churches with capital campaigns, the company I work for. And one of the questions I always ask is, you know, how long has the pastor been at the church? Very standard question. If he's been at a church less than five years one of the things I want to do is extend that honeymoon and help increase the trust in him during that process. Mm. If he's been there longer than five years, the one thing I want to make sure that happens is they don't become fundraisers and erode trust. They're spiritual leaders taking the church on the next natural step of the spiritual journey. So if I'm taking, so let's tie this back to, to football. The NFL, you can turn things around a lot quicker thanks to free agency and the draft, okay, and the salary cap and scheduling and everything the NFL does to create parity. In college, if I'm coaching at the University of, say, Texas El Paso, in five years, if I've got that program at eight and three, I am a great coach, So Mm -hmm. that, that goes back to the realistic, we need to have a realistic expectation of what our program can be. And um, so, yeah, I'd say as a general rule, five years, but there's going to be some situations that it could be quicker or longer based upon the environment and the history of the program.
0: Hmm.
2: Well, you, uh, a lot of college football fans did not like your answer to that. Five years is too long. Three years is better, but okay. But well, we'll trust with you, Brian, that's, We'll go hey,
1: look he's he's getting a lot of heat right now and justifiably so. But Urban Meyer ruined that. Yeah, I mean it took Nick Saban several years to turn around Alabama. Mm-hmm. You know, and th- that's that's just reality. It took hey Miami. It took Harold Schnellenberger several years to turn around the you. That mm. just and it, it's-
0: and no one's done it since. No one's done it since. Oh, I'm just hurting. Hey,
1: Butch Davis. I'll give you Butch
0: Davis. Yeah. Oh,
2: if he only would have stayed, we'd still be yeah. winning. Nick Saban would be not even not even known <laughs> right now. All right. Let me, <laughs> let me ask you this question, uh, Brian. So we see all these great young quarterbacks in the NFL right now. I mean, you just see this great crop like Mahomes and Lamar Jackson, Herbert, and uh, some of the others. How do you see, as you kind of look at them, how do you see how they are different from some of the – how do you see them as leaders different from some of the ones that we're seeing now getting ready to transition to retirement, like the Brady's and the Rogers big Ben, how do you see them leading different?
1: You know, that's an excellent question. Um, I'm going to talk about two things, young leaders and aging leaders. And then I'm going to talk about what they both require. Hmm. Young leaders. I think it's very important when you're a young leader, if you've got older people in your organization who have any, I call it wisdom or insight to them or anything like that, they're going to be open to younger leaders, fresh ideas, fresh perspectives, more in touch with the culture, changing society, things like that. Okay. But there will be a line. And at the end of the day, the young leader has to earn credibility through accomplishment and has to respect those people who have paid the price and paved the way. You can't be an arrogant young leader. Um, You know, we go back to Nehemiah in the Bible. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. And by all accounts, he was very good at it. He was an excellent cupbearer. That gave him credibility to make the request that he made. So the number one thing for young leaders is, yes, bring your fresh ideas, bring your bring, you know, bring the things about culture. This is why you're hired. Help us with technology. This is why you're hired. OK. But you earn credibility through accomplishment and you earn credibility by showing respect. Uh, so that that would be my advice to young leaders, older leaders. I recently just finished a book. It came out in October. I finished it a couple of weeks ago. It's called A Season in the Sun by Lars Anderson. It was a, it was a profile of Tampa Bay winning the Super Bowl last year. Everybody kept, everybody kept saying, Tom Brady changed the culture. Tom Brady changed the culture. And I'm like, yes, he obviously did. Exactly what did he do and how did he do it? That book chronicles, and it doesn't list it out. You've got to be looking for it as you read it. But that book chronicles everything Tom Brady did to change that culture. I'll give you, one, I'll give you just a couple examples. Number one, the day he signed his contract, what was his first request? I want the cell number for every player on the team and Tom Brady immediately reached out to every player on the team with a text or a phone call saying, I can't wait to play with you. This, at the time, was the six-time Super Bowl champion. They should have been calling him, but Tom Brady reached out to them. Tom Brady then organized team practices with the wide receivers and things of that nature. These got to be so popular that the offensive linemen started showing up because they didn't want part of that offense, them missing out on it, and then the defensive players started showing up. So number one, Tom Brady created environments for the next generation of players to be successful. Number three, when they made mistakes, Tom was firm with the mistakes, but he didn't berate them. He provided discipline and feedback and coaching that says, look, this is what it takes to be successful in this league. So he was an incredible mentor from that perspective. Number four, uh, uh, sloughing off and not working hard in practice was one of the things that would set Tom Brady off. The gift of preparation and how you teach the next generation to learn how to prepare to be a success was something Tom was adamant about. And then both of you were senior leaders. Tom Tom gave, as a senior leader, credibility to the coaching staff because Tom did have accomplishments. He had six Super Bowl rings. So when Tom told the younger players, hey, do what B.A. is telling you right now or do what Byron Leftwich is telling you or do what Todd Bowles is telling you, that brought immediate credibility. So when you're a senior leader and I'm 55, so I have to do this at my organization, you have to have the humility to be a continual learner and understand the value that this next generation is bringing, but you also have to have the responsibility of knowing that as a senior leader, if I don't pass on what I've learned when I retire or I resign or I pass away, if I've not invested that in the next generation, Everything I've learned dies with me, hmm. and so I think what happens when you look at the at, at, at really what's required of both of them is all leadership. Mark ten forty five. You know, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. It all boils down to servant leadership, unity, and alignment within the mission and vision of the organization. And regardless of your age or regardless of your status or regardless of your position, your job is to serve other people and then also use your influence, however wide it may be, but you're to use that level of influence to advance the uh, mission and vision of the organization.
0: That's great stuff, Brian. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, and we've touched on this just a bit, but the thing that's always fascinated me about college coaches is, especially the ones that have been around for a while, like a Nick Saban, is how the kids keep coming in young and he gets older. His The kids he deals with are all 18 to 23, and he's now in his 70s. So how does a guy like that continue to figure out how to communicate well? Obviously, he talks to other people, but Does there come a point where as a leader in an organization, they just listen to you because of success or tenure, or do you have to keep striving to figure out how to communicate with the next generation?
1: Yeah, I think there's several, several things here. There's three things I really want to touch on. Um, And Rusty, you've met my 23 year old daughter. Mm -hmm. So I have to interact with her friends and connect with her friends and that kind of thing. And I know you've got, children in that age range as well i think number one you got to be authentic that that younger generation they're going to read through a phony yeah. and if, if you're 60 years old and you're a man don't do a front tuck on your shirt you, you know just be who you are you know <laughs> Don't just be authentic. That's what they love. And that's what they appreciate. <laughs> I know good. I just insulted a lot of pastors. And oh, no,
0: you, you <laughs> know,
1: okay. So number two, you know, because my daughter is that age, um, I, I just have a love and empathy for people that age if nothing else. Cause you know, they're my daughter's age. That's somebody's daughter. That could be my daughter or my son mm-hmm. and, or my son-in-law. Potentially, you know, so you just have to have a love and empathy for that generation of people. And that could come because you're a natural, loving and empathetic person. Or for me, I can connect it to my daughter's experience, you know, but whatever you have to do to become loving and empathetic, you need to do that. And then here's the big one. You got to make their dreams become reality. Here's Mm. where Saban has cracked the code. I can tell you how to get to the NFL. Mm -hmm. You know, John Calipari and Coach K, They, they, you know, Coach K, hey, I coached the dream. I I coached the U.S. Olympic team from 08 to, you know, what was it, 16? Let me get LeBron James on the phone, okay? Mm -hmm. You've got this dream to play in the NFL. Fifty-three players were on NFL rosters on opening day that played for me. I can teach you, I can, if you do what I tell you to do, you'll make it to the NFL. Mm. So, you know, a lot of people can't say that, but whatever it takes to connect with that kid's heart, if you can, if this is leadership for any age, if you know what they laugh about, cry about and dream about and can help leverage that for good in their life not manipulate them, but leverage that for good in their life and to advance your mission, vision of an organization, you can lead anybody. So number one, be authentic. Number two, empathize with them and love them. And number three, find out what their dreams are. You know, at Alabama it's to become a pro football player for a lot of them. For other people, it might be a doctor or lawyer or or just whatever. If you can create a path where their dreams can become reality, you can connect with anybody.
0: Mm. That's good.
2: Oh, that's really good. Hey, let's uh let's talk about programs in general because we see that some programs have an off year. Clemson, let's say right now, Clemson having an off year. Now, being a Miami guy, I'm hoping that that's gonna last for many, many years. But (laughs) Clemson has an off year. Um, you know, you see some of these others that have an off year, but some of them then who were dynasties for a while, they go in the tank for years. So, what makes the difference? What keeps a Clemson from being like a Nebraska? Or some other program
1: that's in the tank for years, like a Miami. What what keeps that the difference there? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a unique twist on this. If DJ was playing like the number one high school recruit in the nation, quarterback as he was recruited out of California as well. Mm-hmm. If he played at that level, would Clemson be having an off year? No. Yeah, because they played Georgia, and Georgia was one play better than Clemson was a returned interception for okay. a
0: touchdown.
1: Okay. So everything rises and falls on leadership. I think if you get the quarterback right, that solves a lot of it. And I'm going to go back to Mac Brown at Texas. Mac Brown had a great run with Vince Young and then Colt McCoy as his quarterbacks. Now, I want to read to you what happened from 2006 to 2012 at the University of Texas. And some of these people he did not select and they wanted to go there because you have a limited number of scholarships. Okay. Or they didn't go there at all. 2006. Javon Sneed out of Texas went there instead of Matthew Stafford. 2007. They signed John Childs over Ryan Tannehill, Nick Foles, and Ryan Mallett. 2008, they did not sign a quarterback, but they also did not sign Andrew Luck or RG3. 2009, they signed Garrett Gilbert over Bryce Petty. 2011, they signed David Ash over, you may not like him, but he won the Heisman Trophy, Johnny Manziel. (laughs) <laughs> 2012 a quarterback by the name of Jameis winston texas was his first choice and they would not sign him so he went to fsu wow wow mac brown continually got the quarterback position wrong and it ultimately led to his demise as coach georgia mark rick gainesville georgia the home of deshaun watson uh Their nickname was the Bulldogs. Their logo on their helmet is the Georgia logo, and it's about an hour, hour and a half, depending on red lights and traffic from Athens. But they were late getting to Deshaun Watson, and by that time, Clemson had already made inroads with him. Mm. But there are people that said early in his life he dreamed of playing for Georgia. So here's the thing. Um, Clemson will remain relevant because Dabo's built a great culture if they get the quarterback position correct. Wow. Now, here's the thing. Will he have to make some potentially hard decisions about his offensive coaching staff? That remains to be seen because there is blood in the water on their systems and their creativity on offense. But no one had those issues when they had Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. So you know that that's that's my answer specifically for clemson get the quarterback position right for like miami figure out a way to lock off the bottom half of florida again
2: yeah, i got the answer for that this is what we did in the 80s and 90s. We paid, paid them. the recruits. Yes, I was gonna say, and I hey, listen. As a pastor, I'm even. I'm not even afraid to say this. I'm okay if we cheat as long as we win. But if we were cheating and not winning, that's the thing that was disturbing for me. So I just wanted well, to here's her. the,
1: here's the deal. I, I'm going to give you a loophole. It's called name, image, and likeness. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's right. Yes, Miami yeah. should do well then. Miami should do well. We, it's we a great created city. this
1: nice little loophole. So surely there's some businesses down in Florida that need a pitch man. Mm -hmm. And, uh, they're called export import businesses
2: down mm -hmm. in Miami, they call them. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So,
0: wow. Well, that's, uh, that's a great way to wrap all this up. Back to the (laughs) you cheating.
1: (laughs) Hey, can I throw in one thing I find fascinating about this year in football? Yes. It's your Los Angeles Rams. Or excuse me. All right. The Los Angeles Rams. Mm -hmm. The Los Angeles. Okay. So here's an interesting thing that they're doing. They cause NFL draft is 50 50 shot. Okay. They're taking their first and second and third round picks and trading them for established stars and then developing the back half of the draft. Yep. That may be the wave of the future.
0: It is interesting, isn't it? I mean, they they did that to get Von Miller. You know, they, they've just now signed Odell Beckham. So uh Jalen
1: Ramsey. Jalen mm-hmm.
0: Ramsey. There Sean McVeigh is very innovative. Everybody loves him. Everybody wants to hire the next Sean McVay. So this could work out really well. Then again, it could work out like the Lakers who keep hiring, uh, you know, these has-beens that uh, it just doesn't fit together. So we will see.
1: Rusty, it's not being reported widely, but the Lakers last week signed Walt Bellamy. From you know, who last played in the 60s, but he was available <laughs> and they needed a big man. And Bob I heard, Bellamy has been signed by the Los Angeles Lakers.
0: I heard they were working out Jerry West, so
1: you know just, <laughs>
0: exactly you never know with them right now. Look, oh Jerry goodness. doesn't have
1: much lateral quickness, but you never forget how to shoot.
0: No, no,
1: that's so for he'll sure. be a spot up guy in the corner for LeBron to pass to. I never yeah. thought I would be in a
2: conversation about basketball and, and have the higher ground being in Milwaukee right now and knowing my <laughs> Bucks just won the NBA championship. This exactly. is
1: interesting. Hey, can, can I throw out something about the Kansas City Chiefs?
0: Please. Oh, throw them, all right, please yeah. throw them last out. please. Throw
1: them out. Last night, at the time of this recording, last night was very, very good for you. But yes. here's the thing about the Kansas City Chiefs all leaders need to learn from, Okay. You may be extraordinarily talented, Mm. but the neglect of the fundamentals of your position could potentially be your undoing. Mm -hmm. There's this famous story about Kobe Bryant, who Alan Stein, and he talks about it in his book called Raise Raise Your Game, went to a 4 a.m. workout to watch Kobe work out. And Kobe was drenched in sweat and he was doing fundamental drills. Now this was in 06 when he was the best player in the league. LeBron had not completely arrived yet. So he was the best player in the league and he attacked the fundamentals that a, that a middle schooler does with the Mamba mentality and the force that was Kobe Bryant. He attacked the fundamentals at that level. Mm -hmm. And so Alan Stein came up to him afterwards and he said, Kobe, you're the best player in the world. Why do you work so hard on basic fundamentals? And Kobe gave this famous answer because I work so hard on the basic fundamentals is why I'm the best player in the world. Mm. And you look at, you know, what the, you, you know, the Chiefs and, you know, the offensive line play and Mahomes footwork and throwing the interceptions. And look, he's still the most physically gifted player quarterback in the league and he could have that ship ride it and by the end of the year they could be super bowl contenders and champions but you know just through this part of the season any person in any if you, both of you are preachers if you forget the fundamentals of sermon preparation it will show up on sunday no matter how many you've done no matter any of those type of things yeah uh, um so, uh, that's, that's the thing that I've learned from the chiefs through the first half of this year is you can have talent, but talent without fundamentals is not a winning equation.
2: Oh, yeah. it is. You. Thank you for that, Brian. That
0: oh, was really easy. Good. I think we saw it in big Ben a long time ago, Mark. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is frustrating because. You know, he, he's Mahomes has become so used to the astonishing plays that that's all he wants to to do now when clearly just dumping the ball seven yards down the field to Travis Kelsey is the only thing he needs to do, which is what they did last night and they, they just crushed the Raiders. So I'm hoping that that, uh, that spoke that spoke to him.
1: Well, you know, that's, that's funny. And this is where sports is such a great parallel for life. We can get addicted to the splash plays and we can get addicted to the Wow. And it's the it's the daily fundamentals of excellence compounded over time that lead to greatness. Mm-hmm. And if all leaders in all industries yeah. would just learn just- that, just just master the fundamentals and do them over and over and over and develop those systems, that's what leads to greatness. Not the not the splash plays.
0: So true. Well, Brian. This has been phenomenal. Would you tell everybody where to find you and make sure they get your blog and give us some updates there?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, you know, uh, best place to find me is on my website, Brian dot on leadership. I write about leadership, you know, sports leadership, church leadership, business leadership, family leadership. Um, You know, each week I do a compilation of the top 10 posts that I read during the week So if you want to cut through clutter and just kind of get to some meaty good stuff, my Friday top 10 list is good Mm -hmm. I've got a podcast that I co-host with a guy named jeff wright called the pursuit of service podcast So we just kind of talk about relevant ongoing leadership topics and i'm still one of those old guys I can't find a way for instagram to link to my website so I'm still on Twitter at Brian K. Dodd, B-R-I-A-N K. Dodd, D-O-D-D. And yeah, reach out to me on any of those platforms. I'd, I'd love to interact with you and, you know, serve you in any way I can. And uh, just be an honor to to continue to invest in your audience.
0: Well, thank you, Brian. Our people have definitely been impacted by you, whether they knew it or not, because I pass on so much of your material uh, Mark and I are so grateful for you, and not just this time. But uh, sports books are the way we decompress, and we also learn a lot about life from those and from leadership. So, you keep our libraries full. So, thank
1: you very, very much. Somebody's got to keep the book industry going. So it's it's me and Donald Trump. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> we do what we can. We do what we can.
0: Well said. <laughs>